I think I've told you this story before. At least I think I have. But I think I've told you the story before of three boys who are out in the playground. And they're bragging about their dads. And the one kid, his dad was a songwriter and uh, kind of a poet. And they're bragging about how, how rich their dads are. And how great their dads are. And the one kid goes, Yeah, well, my dad... He scribbles words on pieces of paper and people call it a poem or a song and they send him a check for $50. That's how cool my dad is. The next kid down the line, he says, well, yeah. What about my my dad? He scribbles words on little pieces of paper and uh, they call it a legal document. He's a lawyer and they give him $200 when he does that. Well, the third kid, his dad was a pastor, and he says, you guys got nothing on my dad. My dad scribbles some words on a piece of paper, calls it a sermon, gets up in front of people, and it takes eight guys to collect all the money. (laughs) You know, if you're a Christian, your heavenly father, your dad is the richest guy around. In fact, he owns it all. It's all his. Do you know that? Every molecule of air, every penny in your pocket, every piece of clothing in your closet, it's all God's. Every kid that lives in your house, everything in the refrigerator, it's all his. The car in the garage, it's his. The grass in the, in the yard, it, it's his. All of it is God's. Well, we've been studying the book of Philippians, and this morning, after 13 weeks together, we're going to wrap it up. And Paul's overarching theme through the book of Philippians is this idea of joy and rejoicing. And I've told you that to rejoice is a choice. It's something I choose to do. It's it's when I choose to dwell on God's grace and let it define me, reveling in it, Because God's grace supersedes any and every other thing. That happiness is based in my happenings, but joy is based in Jesus Christ and in God's grace to me through Jesus Christ. And so rejoicing is choosing to dwell on that grace. Well, Paul writes this to a church in a city called Philippi. And Paul's writing from prison for preaching that grace. For preaching the gospel. He's been thrown in prison. And he's writing to a church that he helped start. And when we get to the end of his letter here, what he does is he thanks them for a gift that they gave him. And what I see here is a a tie here between their rejoicing and choosing to rejoice. And Paul saying over and over and over in the letter, like 16 times, to choose joy and to rejoice. It's related to the way that they give generously. And when you think about it, maybe we'll set it up this way. What is God's grace? It's an undeserved gift from him. It's undeserved favor. It's getting what I don't deserve, right? And I've told you mercy is the other way. It's, it's not getting what I do deserve. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. In other words, grace is a gift. So when my life is focused on God's grace, and, and my life is defined then by God's grace, so that his grace flows through me, then guess what? I become just like God, one who gives 
The one who gave me grace, now I pass on grace and goodness to others in Jesus' name. And that's what we're going to see the Philippians did here with Paul. I'm going to start reading in verse 10, but we're going to actually begin in verse 14 this morning. But I'm going to set it up by starting back in verse 10, which we worked through last Sunday. And I'm going to read to the end of the book of Philippians, chapter 4, starting in verse 10. Paul writes this. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, Paul writes, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things, Paul writes, through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus, in glory in Christ Jesus. To God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Then Paul gives his final greetings. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Tell you what, let's pray. Then we're going to start unpacking this and looking at the generosity of the Philippian church. Let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus and thanks for your grace to us. Thanks for the free gift that you give us. In fact, that's what our salvation is. It's a free gift, God, of yours through Jesus Christ. So that I can't boast about earning it that I can't boast in my good works, but I can boast only in Jesus and Jesus alone. Thank you for that. Thank you that you're a God who gives. And uh, Holy Spirit, I I pray this morning you would fill me and you would speak to and through me as I preach and teach your word. I pray against the enemy who would uh, take your words and twist them. He loves to tempt us and accuse us. And... uh, He would accuse us in our failure. He would twist your words from their truth to cause us to believe things that aren't true. And instead, Holy Spirit, work in such a way that uh, you might prick our hearts to be more and more generous, just like Jesus himself was generous. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, I mentioned Paul's writing a letter to a church that he planted. And at the end, he includes this thank you. He thanks them for their generosity. Do you ever write thank you notes? You write thank you notes to people? I remember when I graduated high school, before I could spend any of that money, I had to get my thank you notes done. I had to thank everybody for what they gave me. And I can remember when Hannah and I got married, when writing thank you notes to people who gave us things. And yet when Paul writes a thank you note, it's a little different. When Paul writes a thank you note, he thanks the person for the gift, but ultimately, he thanks God for what he did through those people. And he recognizes it's not the gift so much that's the good thing, it's the ultimate giver, God himself, who is the one who's good. 
And the generosity of the believers at Philippi is a blessing to Paul, but as, a, as the book of Proverbs says, a generous man will himself be blessed. Proverbs 22, verse 9. And so Paul recognizes that their generosity is because God has been generous to them. And he recognizes that in their generosity, they too are going to be blessed. That, that a generous man will himself be blessed. And he's writing in mind, not just thanking them for the gift, but looking forward to what God is doing and being excited about what God is doing in the church in Philippi through their generosity. See, look at verse 14. He says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Share that word. Your translation might say, it was kind of you to uh, participate in the fellowship of my troubles, of my tribulation, of the things I struggled with. Uh, Fellowship is this idea of being united around the same cause, moving the same direction. Uh, The way I kind of remember that, it's at least two fellows in the same ship. You're going the same way. And and they're moving together for the cause of the gospel. They're partnering together. He goes on, he says, And you Philippians yourselves, you know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Before we really get into this, it might be helpful for us to follow Paul's route on a map because Paul planted the church in Philippi, but he didn't just all of a sudden start in Philippi and then where is he? How did he get to Rome now? Paul had multiple missionary journeys and on his second journey is when he came to Philippi. And it's a little bit tricky to see on the screen up here, but he starts down in the bottom right in Jerusalem, works his way up through Damascus and Antioch, or starts in Antioch, excuse me, ends up back there. But he crosses the Aegean Sea, goes to Tarsus, Derby or Mediterranean Sea, Lystra, Iconium, works his way up to where he eventually makes it to Troas. They come to Troas and they discern that God's calling them further west into Europe. So they cross the Aegean Sea, landing at the port city of Neapolis. And from there, Paul and his companions proceed immediately to Philippi. You know what happens in Philippi? Do you remember? In Acts chapter 16, Paul and his companions get... He and Silas are arrested, beaten up, imprisoned, tortured, eventually escorted out of town. Yet in the meantime, somehow, in that process, he plants a church. Somehow, in the midst of circumstances that make no sense, God uses him to spread the gospel and to start a new church. Well, leaving Philippi, Paul quickly passes through and Philopolis and Apollonia, and he arrives at Thessalonica. And he's only at Thessalonica for a couple weeks, but while he's there, he starts a new church. And it's only a few weeks after he's left Philippi. So Paul, when he's writing this, if we look back at verse 15, he says, You Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Even before I was barely out of town, you were supporting me. And you were giving to me, and you were part of my ministry. And really what Paul's saying is the same thing that he said early in this book, is that he thanked God for their partnership in the gospel. And what I want you to see this morning is three things about giving to ministry, to the gospel, and three things about giving within of yourself, in other words, in ministry. 
And we see these in the Philippian church. The first is this, that giving in or to ministry is a partnership. It's a partnership. It's, see, look what Paul says in verse 15. It's giving and receiving. It's give and take. Too, too many Christians are all about receiving and not about giving. It's all, what have you done for me lately? What programs do you have for me and my kids? What? And they're not giving of their, and I'm not just talking about financial. I mean, like time, talent, resources. Where are you serving? I don't, I don't feel, I don't like this church because it doesn't feel like anybody loves me. Well, where are you giving of your time, talent, treasure? Where are you investing? I would contend, and I think Paul would contend, apart from giving, you're not in the partnership of ministry. Apart from giving of yourself somehow. Think about the places where you felt most connected over time. Most connected, most loved, most part of it. In partnership. Where was it? It's the places where you probably gave the most. Maybe it was a football team. And you gave of yourself through two-a-days. And you worked hard. And you sweated it out. And blood, sweat, and tears. And you were there. You were with the guys. And you were in it. Why? Because you gave of yourself. Maybe it's part of your family and you work hard to supply for your family and you give of yourself for that. Maybe, hopefully, it's the church where you... Listen, where you give is where you get connected. Where you give is where you have partnership and where you have true fellowship. What Paul's talking about, sharing in his troubles. And, and, And Paul, when he talks about giving, he thanks them for the gift, but you'll notice here in a little bit, his ultimate concern isn't with the gift. It's not with the fact that they give. It's that them giving means they're being good Christians, that they're growing, that they're being connected. And that's a good thing. Where are you giving? Where are you partnering in ministry? You know, I, I think of my own role as a, as a pastor. There's a lot of things I could use help with in ministry. There's a lot of things. I, I do too much. I wrote just a few down. One of the things that I could use help with, I could use help with more people to lead a 110 group, with more people to help organize and care for 110 groups. You know, we did the Shape series a few months ago so that you'd be encouraged to serve in ministry. I could use help writing 110 group homework questions. Maybe you got a good mind and you like to write questions. Maybe you could help with that. Maybe you could help visiting and caring for people who are sick. It's impossible for me to get to everybody just because of the amount of time God's given each of us. But thankfully, maybe you could go. And, and I know Jack helps with that, one of our former pastors. And he goes and he helps. And I bet he would love to have three, four people who would just go along with him that he could kind of show the ropes to. And maybe you could go and help and care for people who are hurting and sick. And maybe you could help manage our website. Maybe you could help be part of a missionary care team that we want to try to establish to, to care for and contact our miss, missionaries like the Philippians contacted and cared for Paul. That you'd be in partnership with them. Maybe you could help by praying, being part of a prayer team. Maybe you have ideas of ways you could help that I haven't even thought about, that I'm blind to. Where could you give and partner in ministry of your time, talent, and treasure? Everyone has different roles and they work together. That's what partnership is. That's why Paul calls the body, he says it's one body with many parts. So so my question is, what's your part in the partnership? Where are you giving of your time, talent, treasure? 
to serve in ministry. The Philippians got it. See, look at that. They, they, you Philippians yourselves know in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Once and again. They didn't just give and forget, serve once, and now oh, I've done my job. Because of their partnership, because of their investment, they just kept giving to Paul and kept giving to others. And what's really curious, I mentioned this last week, but the churches in Macedonia weren't wealthy churches. They're dirt poor. Paul writes about them to the church in Corinth, to a church that's very wealthy, and he says, you can't believe what these guys are doing out of their poverty and the ways that they're giving. And I pray that you too would excel in the grace of giving like they have. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10. And you don't have to be wealthy to give of your time, talent, treasure, but I don't know that there's a healthy Christian that doesn't give of your time, talent, and treasure. See, when Paul says, you you help me with my needs once and again, you know how they kept giving? Generously. Generously. What's a fully devoted follower, right? One who's learning continually to know Jesus and image Jesus, and they worship passionately, they love selflessly, and they give, how's it go? Generously. And they give generously. You know, I'm not going to lie, and I'm talking about money, talking about giving on a Sunday morning as a pastor is an awkward thing. For a handful of reasons. It's, it's just, it's a strange thing to bring up in the church. And it's understandable why sometimes people go, especially if you were here last week, because we talked about some of these things last week too. Two weeks in a row, you're getting it. But yet two weeks in a row, that's what the text has talked about. So it's what God has for us. But it's awkward because, and it's understandable because there's religious marketers out there that are trying to take advantage of gullible givers. <laughs> you know, put your hands on the TV, send me a check for $5 and all your wildest dreams will come true. And there's people like that. And they've taken advantage of people in big ways. And it's horrible and it's sad. They fleece the sheep. And, and Paul understood this too. And in ancient cities like Philippi, what would happen if you'd walk through the city is there would be philosophers on the street corners spouting their philosophy, spouting their sermons, teaching their teachings, gaining their followers. And for the most part, these guys were largely considered to be charlatans because they would gather this following that they'd live off their financial support. And so when Paul goes into a city, he wants to distance himself from that because sometimes he too preached on the corners and in the marketplace, just like their culture did it. Take a little side trip here. Paul used what was normal for that culture to preach the gospel which would be good for us to embrace things that are normal for our culture in order to bring the gospel to it, like technology, like you name it, like the the way we worship, the songs we sing, all of that, because it reaches a culture at a level that they understand. And and Paul got it. So he goes out on the street corner, just like other people did, reaching that culture, and he starts preaching. And whenever Paul proclaimed the gospel to plant a new church, though, what he would do is he would refuse to take money while he was there. He didn't want there to be a hint of scandal associated with him like there was with others. He, he was preaching the free gift of salvation, and he wanted his ministry to be consistent with that. 
So if Paul planted your church, at least for the time he was there, there wouldn't be any offerings taken. However, once he left town, then the offerings began. And he had no problem after he left town asking for gifts. Why? Because God first gave to us. And it was a partnership. He taught very clearly that those who proclaim the gospel have every right to make their living from the gospel. Which again is why it's awkward for me to stand up here and talk about giving because I realize your generosity is what puts food on my table. And I thank you for that. I thank you for the gift, but also like Paul thanks the Philippian church, I thank you for being followers of Jesus who model a giving heart like Jesus himself did. And that's encouraging to see the health of our church in that way. But Paul, at least while he was in the city he was in, he chose to decline that privilege. And instead, he worked a job as a tent maker to put food on the table and to earn a living. And he kindly asked the churches then, after he left, to start partnering with him financially. But only after he left to start other churches. And the Philippians, he says, embraced this opportunity like no other church in Macedonia. Like no other church he had been at. You know there was... There was no other church who entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only, Paul wrote to them. They gave like no other congregation gave. I want to encourage you, our congregation, you as a church family, you give like few congregations give. And I pray that that's true for us for the long haul. I know so many other pastors and so many other churches where, where people don't give and we don't talk about giving a lot. Yet it's the goodness of God, the Holy Spirit working in your hearts that you recognize, I'm not going to have sticky fingers. This is God's. Let him do with it what he pleases. Keep at it. Keep at it. Why? Because God's still redeeming people. He's still using the gifts he's given you and that you're giving to, to bless others and to care for others. And it's a partnership in that way. We each have our role. So giving to ministry, giving in ministry is a partnership, but also, number two, giving in and giving to ministry is an investment. It's an investment. Look at verse 17 and 18. Not that I seek the gift, Paul says. I'm not thanking you for giving so that you give more. I'm not seeking a gift. I'm not sending a receipt so you send back an envelope with more money. I'm doing it because I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I want you to give because when you give, the generous man is blessed by God. That's God's word. Do you believe that? And I've got to be careful. Because there's some who would take these verses and this passage and they use it to teach a health and wealth gospel. That God is really rich. And if you would give to him, he'll make you really rich. And if you're not really rich yet, then you're probably just not giving enough for him to make you rich. Okay, that makes zero sense, right? And they're fleecing God's people. They're taking advantage of it. That's not what Paul's saying. He never promises here that we're going to become rich and wealthy by giving. One day, Jesus promises we'll get everything back a hundredfold, but not necessarily in this life. And Paul doesn't promise that either. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul knew the reality is that the giver is the one who usually benefits more than the receiver. 
He said, that's why he says, I want you to give. I want you to grow. I want you to get credit. He says, verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It's pretty clear that Paul isn't posturing for another gift. In fact, he says, I'm, I'm fully supplied now. Please, you've given me enough. Give it somewhere else this time. He'd received full payment. Do you know, if you could see this in the Greek, and you could compare it to documents of that day, Paul's actually writing in business language and with financial terms of the financial marketplace of that day. Um, it's found, this word, it's found on ancient receipts in the same way that ours might be stamped paid in full with the big red stamp. This Greek word would be, it'd be written on your receipt. It meant, it meant there was nothing left to pay. You had it paid up. And there's other language that comes out of the business world in this, this passage. Even back in verse 15, giving and receiving are accounting terms similar to our debits and credits. Or in verse 17, fruit that increases to your credit. In first century commerce, the term fruit was borrowed from agriculture and it was used as a, as a general economic metaphor. It spoke of monetary profit that was harvested from any form of labor or investment. Paul, in other words, he's saying, don't view your contribution as a loss. View your giving and your contribution as an investment. As an investment that will grow to your credit. When I'm giving to God, I'm not losing anything. Do you get that? When my heart is right before God and I give out of a motivation because he first gave to me. And I love because he first loved me. I'm not losing anything by giving. Whether that's my time, my talent, or my treasure. I'm not losing it. Peter, when, when he's before Jesus, he, he tells Jesus, I've... Jesus, to follow you, I've given up my family, I've I've, I've given up my home, I've given up all kinds of things. And Jesus says what to him? He says, anyone who's given up their, their family, their loved ones, I'm paraphrasing, but for the cause of the gospel, what will happen? They'll get it back. How much? A hundredfold. Peter, you haven't lost anything. Maybe temporarily it feels like it, but you haven't lost anything. And when I have that mindset and I understand it's all God's and that giving is just an investment really of his stuff, I'm not losing anything. But I'm getting it back and even more one day. See, the main reason Paul's so pleased by the Philippians' gift is not that it's going to help him buy groceries or pay the rent or a new pair of shoes. And it might do all of that. It probably will. He's rejoicing, like I said before, because the Philippians are acting like Christians. They're acting like followers of Jesus. In other words, they're imaging Jesus. They're being like Jesus who gave his entire life for them. And they too are giving. And you've got to know, God is no man's debtor. And he'll reward the one who gives of his time, talent, and treasure. See, this isn't really a giving issue, though, is it then? If everything is God's. I mean, do you agree with me that it all belongs to God? If you don't, maybe you would look at Psalm 24, verse 1, where it says, The earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. And Paul, when he talks about doing all things to the glory of God, when he writes to the the church in Corinth, he tells them in chapter 10 to do all things to the glory of God. And he quotes Psalm 24. He says, For, why? 
Because the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it, it all belongs to him. And in Psalm 50, when God uh, rebukes Israel in, in one of the Psalms and he says, I, I, I'm not so concerned about what you give me. I, let me read it to you. You get to Psalm 50 and God says this. I have no complaint about your sacrifices or the burnt offerings you constantly offer, but I don't need the bulls from your barns. I don't need the goats from your pens. It's not about how much you give. I don't need it, God says. You get it? I don't need it. For all the animals of the forest are mine. God's the one person who rightly gets to act like the birds on Finding Nemo. Mine, mine, mine. It's all his. For all the animals of the forest are mine, and I own all the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird on the mountains, and all the animals of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for all the world's mine, and everything in it. Do I eat the meat of bulls? Do I drink the blood of goats? Make thankfulness your sacrifice to God, and keep the vows you made to the Most High. Then call on me when you're in trouble, and I will rescue you, and you will give me glory. It's all God's. And so really, this isn't even a message on giving. This is on, to give generously means to be a good, do you know the word? Steward. A good steward. This is about stewardship. How do you care for what God has given you? Do you know what it means to be a steward? Do you know what it means? You're like, that sounds like a word, that's kind of a Christian word, right, Josh? Like, that word, I mean, that's like a churchy word. Steward, stewardship. That's the only place I've ever heard that word, Roy. Well, it's one you hear in the church a lot, but it's not a Christian idea at all. It's actually an old English concept. Let me tell you where this word comes from. It's drawn from the days of cattle and realms with people who ran the realms. In those days, think Braveheart. Okay, there are these areas of land called realms. They're about what to our equivalent, about three, four counties large. And in the middle of the realm was a castle which belonged to the Lord of the realm. Now the Lord of the realm owned everything in his realm and under his realm. He owned the land, he owned all the farms, he owned all the buildings, and he owned the commerce, and everything was under his control And it was under the Lord's authority. And of course, as you can imagine, the Lord's home was the nicest one. His castle was the most opulent one in all the realm. Why? Because he owned it all. It was his. But do you know what house was the next nicest one to the Lord's? The steward's. And the steward's house sat next to the Lord's house. It wasn't quite as nice, but it was the the next nicest. Yet the steward didn't own anything. Everything was owned by his Lord. But he took care of everything that belonged to the Lord. He managed the crop rotations, the labor force, the taxes, the banking, the commerce, and any of the the Lord's other interests the steward did. And that's what stewardship is. It's asset management. Some of you financial people are like, yes, I I know much about asset management. Good. It's biblical. Because it's all God's. That's what stewardship was about. So in the early 1600s, when the translators of the King James Bible needed a word to describe how God wants believers to handle money, the idea of stewards and stewardship was a natural fit. 
On the one hand, God is the Lord. He owns it all, right? When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, I told you this already, he, he tells us to do everything for his benefit, his glory, because the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. He's the Lord. He owns it all. How much does God own? All of it. On the other hand, we're given much of what he owns. And so while he's the Lord of the realm, we're the stewards of the realm. And he gives us blessings. He gives us things to use, to enjoy. For whose benefit? The Lord's benefit, ultimately. Yet there's still so much for us to enjoy in the midst of that. And just like the old English Lord held steward held the steward responsible for his stewardship, we will give an account of how we manage God's resources. Paul says this to the Corinthians in chapter 4. He says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. And as believers, we can't disconnect the idea of giving and ownership from stewardship because ultimately none of it's ours to begin with. It's all God's. So what is stewardship then? Well, I think here's a good definition. I think this comes from Dave Ramsey. But stewardship, stewardship, stewardship is managing God's stuff, God's way, for God's glory. Do you manage God's stuff, God's way, for God's glory? Because all the stuff you've got, that's whose it is. And he's given it to you to manage. Some of you, he's given more than others. But it's all his. How will you manage it? Hebrews 2.10 says, Everything belongs to God. All things were created by his power. So, well, what does this have to do with Philippians chapter 4? How do we get off on stewardship, Josh? Well, it's clear that the, the, the Philippians understood what it means to be a steward. This is, this is why when we give, the, and then when the Philippians gave, it was, how does Paul say it? A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You know, this is the same language that's used by Paul in Ephesians 2 when he says of Jesus' death on the cross that he tells us, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So in other words, when the Philippians are giving, they're imitating Jesus. Just like Jesus' gift was a fragrant offering, their gift is a fragrant offering. They're stewarding what is God's. They're learning to image Jesus in their giving. And God's a giving God. If he wasn't, none of us would be alive. The Bible calls him the giver of life. God so loved the world that he gave Paul's excited for the Philippians' gift because he sees in them Christians who are being Christians, who are being little imitators of Jesus and giving. And he tells them, it's an investment to your credit. Giving to the gospel ministry of my time, talent, treasure is investing God's money, God's time, God's talents. You can't outgive God. God owns it all. You know, when I was little... It took me a while to understand this concept that God owns everything. When I was little, I went to a pretty traditional church, and at VBS in the summers or even on, during, on Sunday mornings during Sunday school, I would get yelled at. Do you know what for? 
running. Running in the church. I would get yelled at for it. That's not, don't be running in the church, Josh. Now, there's a lot of good reasons not to run in the church, right? You might run into somebody and hurt them. You might run into one of the pews and crack your head open. You might run into a stained glass window in the church I grew up in and hurt the window and yourself and your dad's pocketbook. But you know what the reason I was given not for running, to not run, given for to not run? I was told, don't run because this is God's house. So that means I can run at my house? Hey, do your kids a favor in teaching them stewardship. Never teach them that the church is God's house. Never say that. Listen, there is no more, this space that I'm standing on right here is no more sacred than the space right outside the dump. There's no such thing as a sacred space where God isn't and a dark place where God is not. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And, And furthermore, it's all his. Yeah, this is God's house, but so is your house. And so is my house. And so are the houses on a thousand hills and a thousand, all all the way around the world. It's all God's. Never forget that. It's all his. Every house is God's house. Every place in that sense then is sacred space because God is present. That's why when this church started, we didn't start worshiping in a sanctuary. We worshiped in a gym. Now, what do you do when you tell the kid, don't run in the church? Well, the church is the gym. I run here every week. I could tell my PE teacher I don't have to run. Is that what you're saying? I was a chubby kid. I'd have been like, yes, I don't have to run in gym class. This is awesome. But it's all God's. It doesn't matter if there's thin glass windows. It doesn't matter if there's dirt on the floor. It, it doesn't matter. It's all God's. And we're stewards of it. Because, loved ones, you can take nothing with you. Do you remember that? Uh, Timothy, Paul says it to Timothy this way, Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can take nothing with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich, he doesn't say people who are rich. He says people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money itself, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the truth, true faith, and pierced themselves with many sorrows. He goes on in verse 17 of chapter 6 in 1 Timothy. He says, teach then those who are rich in this world, not to be proud, not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. God gives you good gifts because he is good and he wants you to enjoy it. And so that you would give good gifts to others so that they would enjoy his goodness. And all of it's an investment of God's money. Giving in and to ministry, it's, it's a partnership with Jesus in the gospel, with the church in the gospel. It's an investment because it, it's, it's, it's investing it. It's giving what's not yours to begin with so that it would grow, so that it would gain fruit to our credit. And giving in and to ministry then is a guaranteed return on your investment. It's a guaranteed return. God promises to supply our every need, not our wants. 
He promises to supply what is required, not necessarily what's desired. See, look at verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He might supply our wants. Sometimes he does, but not always. He will supply our every need according to his riches in glory in Jesus Christ. Now, the ones I mentioned earlier who would abuse this and say, if you're not wealthy, it's because you haven't given enough. They would say that you're going to just get all of God's riches. I mean, you're going to be rich like God. One day you'll share in that and steward that with him if you're faithful. But in this life, you might sacrifice. You might lose a lot. But in the end, it's a return that you're going to get, which is, as Jesus told Peter, a hundredfold, maybe more. And the only way we do this is keeping our eyes on eternity. The only way we do this is by rejoicing, by keeping my eyes on God's grace, dwelling on his grace, letting it define me, reveling in it, being a giving person, giving generously. And the Philippians were a church of people, a church of men and women who gave generously. And Paul tells them that it's a fruit that will increase to their credit. And that God will supply every need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. In other words, you can't outgive God. You cannot. It's impossible. Well, Paul goes on as he closes his letter and he says, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Because it's all his. He's the one who gets credit, he's the one who gets glory forever and ever. And he closes with just a traditional closing. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Loved ones, my prayer for you after working through the book of Philippians is one that you choose to rejoice, you choose to dwell on God's grace, but also that you choose to live it out that you'd be defined by his grace, that just as you received the free gift of salvation, that you too would give gifts to the people that God's put in your path, that you would serve in partnership in the ministry and the church that he's placed you in, that you would invest for the kingdom and that you would look forward to the return that he promises on that investment. Let me pray. Uh, we'll celebrate. We'll sing, celebrate communion together, and call it a morning. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for uh, your goodness to us, your good gifts to us through Jesus. Thank you that um, you loved the world so much that you gave your Son, and that Jesus, you were faithful to the end, giving your life on the cross. Father, help me to be more generous, more generous with my time, more generous with my talent, more generous with my treasure. It's the times I don't give are the times when I have my eyes, Jesus, not on you, but on myself. And that's true for all of us. So Jesus, turn our eyes toward you. Turn our eyes toward uh, your goodness, your blessing to us, because that blessing points to the good giver, our good dad. Thanks that you love us. We pray all this through Jesus, our Savior. Amen.